This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Department of Health and Human Services has some new authorities to hopefully help resolve the nationwide shortage of baby formula. That's after President Biden invoked the somewhat rarely used Defense Production Act last week. But it's not exactly clear how HHS will use those newly delegated authorities and how much help they could provide. Meanwhile, lots of questions about the crisis on Capitol Hill. That's where we find WTOP's Mitchell Miller, and he joins us now for a preview of what to expect on the Hill this week. Hi, Mitchell. Hi there. Let's um, let's start with the formula issue. Best we can tell where do things stand right now, both in terms of the uh, the administration's response and any ways in which lawmakers might be looking to intervene or, or at least conduct oversight. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf says improvements are getting underway this week, and he told members of an angry House panel last week that it could take several weeks before parents actually start to see baby formula on shelves like they're accustomed to see. And this, of course, goes back to the issues at Abbott's production facility in Michigan. Lawmakers from both parties still very upset with the FDA, saying it was slow to react to these problems that they say they've known about for months. Now, for its part, the Biden administration has started a program to use military aircraft to actually bring in formula from foreign manufacturers generally during a regular part of the year basically you have 98 percent of the baby formula being uh, made and distributed here at facilities in the United States. So this is a big change. And the House also passed a bill to provide the FDA with $28 million last week, but it's unlikely to pass in the Senate. Now, the Senate did join the House in approving changes in the WIC program for low-income women. Uh, essentially, this allows them to go to other baby formulas, if you will. Uh, normally, they have to get one specific one that's USDA approved. This loosens the regulations related Related to that, so that was one area where both the House and the Senate were both on the same page. Uh, but also, as you know, within the FDA, there is a lot of uh, angst, frankly, uh, within the agency about how things are being managed. Now, the Commissioner Califf has appointed Janet Woodcock, who's Deputy Commissioner and had been Acting Commissioner of the. To have a bigger role on not only this issue, but other uh, major food issues. But consumer advocates have been critical of that. Uh, they say her expertise has really been more related to drug approvals. Uh, a lot of people from the outside looking in say the FDA needs to do a lot more within the organization to get ahead of some of these big issues. Well, could we be a little clearer on, on, you know, to the extent there is finger pointing in the FDA's direction, what exactly is the criticism? What, what do members of Congress who are pointing that finger think they could have done better to head off this crisis? Well, what they're saying is that there were starting to be rumblings of issues going back as far as last fall. And then when it really hit the fan was in February when you had specific uh, problems at the Abbott facility, which unfortunately it looks like at least two baby deaths are related to some kind of problems with the plant and safety issues there. And what they're saying is that as far back at least as February and maybe even beyond that, that the FDA should have been taking a much more aggressive look at what was happening at that plant. Eventually, of course, the FDA did shut down the operations at the plant, but they're arguing that there was really no longer-term plan to get the plant back up or to figure out with all these supply chain issues that have ramped up uh, what they were going to do to actually get 
the baby formula to people. And then, of course, obviously it just blew up uh, when you had people getting to the stores and not seeing it. And, you know, I've talked to some lawmakers about this. I talked to uh, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, and he acknowledged that Congress was, frankly, slow on its own part to recognize. He said he didn't himself really realize that there was a problem until about a month ago. So I think in a lot of these instances, as you know, there's plenty of blame to go around. Let's uh, zoom out a bit and talk about the legislative schedule some here. I, I, know, I know it's been a few busy weeks of congressional hearings uh, on both the House and Senate side. I, th- I think the House is actually out now for, for at least a bit. Is this kind of the sign of things winding down toward election season and prospects of legislation getting dimmer? It really looks like that, Jared. I mean, right now you have uh, this week the House is out. They will be back. The Senate is in. But right now there's really this feeling that what is actually going to get done? And there's really not a good optimistic feeling about a lot of things getting done. Of course, last week the Senate uh, followed the House and did pass the nearly $40 billion in Ukraine aid. Uh, That has obviously dominated a lot of things. But in terms of federal agencies and things actually getting done on the more traditional level, it's really been slow, uh, especially even for a midterm election year. Obviously, congressional Democrats have been trying to get some kind of reconciliation measure through for months, but they keep hitting this stop sign. Uh, some of them say that the stop sign is Senator Joe Manchin, but nonetheless, it does not look like there's going to be even piecemeal legislation, which they have talked about, uh, whether it's adding to a daycare or providing more child care uh, funding for uh, or lowering prescription drug prices. Uh, a lot of these get a lot of discussion among congressional Democrats, but realistically, there's just no path forward for it. You have a 50-50 Senate, and of course, you need the 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. So I don't see a lot of optimist- optimism right there about any kind of legislation getting done. And then if we move to the, the more basics, the nuts and bolts of uh, congressional uh, budget Uh, You know, you have the four corners, you have the appropriators who have been saying really now for many weeks that, yes, we're slowly making some progress here. But there hasn't really been any kind of breakthrough moment where uh, we thought that, okay, now they're finally getting to the next fiscal year budget. It's still very early in that process. And as you know, uh, from past years, uh, they just don't generally get a lot of these major bills passed in a midterm election year. Yeah, and I think folks are pretty used to living under CRs for at least the first few months now of every federal fiscal year. Is it basically just a certainty, especially with the election year, that that's going to be the case again for this year? I think there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the, the CR is going to be back. We're going to see uh, a little bit of optimism here and there, and then it'll all fall to the side, as it usually does. So we'll be looking at a continuing resolution sometime late in the year, and uh, there's just not enough agreement on either side. I mean, you do have some uh, people that think that they could push through and maybe get a couple of spending bills through, but uh, that would be even optimistic. So I think we're just headed for those two familiar letters, CR. And I know one agency budget in particular you're watching is the IRS, which uh, the president has proposed, I believe, $80 billion in new funding for. And uh, meanwhile, also some scrutiny from GAO over that agency. What are you watching there? 
Right. Uh, Congress has really been all over the IRS, as you know. And uh, as Federal News Network reported last week, this new GAO report came out. This was uh, requested by Idaho Senator Mike Crapo, who's the ranking Republican on the Senate Finance Committee. A lot of concern uh, in connection, particularly with Republicans, about whether or not the IRS was poking around too much into some personal things related to people who filed and whether uh, people had gone too far in that. Now, this GAO report found that several hundred IRS employees over a decade or so violated various policies going unauthorized access to taxpayer information. In some cases, they just don't know exactly uh, what was found or particularly why it happened. Um, the IRS has been somewhat opaque on some of the other, uh, on some of the issues where people, uh, it wasn't really clear, frankly, what they were looking for, but they may have violated a, um, a policy nonetheless. So, so that's been happening. And then related to the uh, $80 billion that the president wants, uh, there's just no way, obviously, that they're going to get it. Uh, a lot of Republican opposition to this. Democrats on the other side say you're going to continue to have these problems with the IRS in terms of paper uh, backups and not getting enough audits done and all of this getting, uh, you know, this waiting game at the IRS that we're familiar with if you don't provide some additional funding. But right now, I just don't see anything close to that kind of funding happening, although the IRS has certainly made a big push to try to get more resources and try to get that paper back, uh, the, the paper backlog down, although it has made some uh, some progress in that area. All right. WTOP's Mitchell Miller joining us from the Capitol. Thanks a lot, Mitchell. You bet. Hello. I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.